Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Medical and Performance Solutions Specialist, Grant Downey. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So there's not many practitioners from a football background who have the amount of experience that today's guest, Grant Downey, has in professional football. So going from Head of Performance at Glasgow Rangers to Head of Sports Science at uh, Middlesbrough Football Club, and then most recently in professional football as Head of Academy Performance at Manchester City. So an incredible array of experience. Um, The transition from been a medical practitioner into an overall performance lead is a really interesting chat that I have with Grant on this episode, as well as how he manages people, how he has developed his own practice over time with the introduction of more strength and conditioning staff, more sports science staff. Obviously, he's been in the period where there was none of that, so when at Man City, when there was all of that. Um, Also, the process of critiquing staff and feeding that critique back to them and how that process is managed. And then finally, we discuss a lot on mentoring because that is a lot of the work that Grant does now. So a really interesting chat with an incredibly experienced practitioner. Um, So any, especially young coaches out there, have a listen, take it all in. You'll get some absolute gold from this episode. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. This episode with Grant is also being supported by the Football Association, by the FA. So really appreciate their support in helping me get Grant on and uh, helping me provide the platform to be able to discuss some of these topics, some really interesting topics with Grant on this episode. So without further ado, over to the episode with Grant Downey. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I am delighted to welcome Grant Downey this evening to the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Grant. Many thanks, Eid. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on and giving up your time. I know it's a busy time for you, so uh, thank you for making time for me. So Pleasure. anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to go with, with podcast tradition, going through a little bit of background on yourself, a um, bit of education, a bit of previous roles, and what you're currently doing um, as we speak. Okay, so professional-wise, I am a chartered physiotherapist, probably qualified far too long to remember, probably 35-plus years. Uh, worked in elite sport for 33 years 
uh, in different roles from being a lead clinical physio to a senior physio in different departments. I've led medical departments, medical and sports science departments, led performance departments. So basically organisations who I've worked for are the FA, I've worked for Glasgow Rangers Football Club, Middlesbrough Football Club, uh, Manchester City, laterally as head of performance for their academy and helping the development of the women's programme. Now I've sort of left full-time employment. I now consult. Uh, I have contracts with the City Football Group, uh, Scottish Football Association, the Premier League. And I also have a sort of a private mentorship scheme where I try and help younger practitioners in medicine and science to try and help develop their soft skills of, of developing their practice so they can have more influence, not just with the stakeholders they see, i.e. the players, but also maybe chief executive managers and other people. So just diving into the consultancy you've got going on in the minute yeah. just build that out for us a little bit what does that what does that mean what kind of tasks are you doing what kind of things are you implementing yeah no listen first of all for a lot of the groups i act as what we call a critical friend so therefore i'm there for someone they can phone up and they can ask advice accordingly and hopefully i can give impartial advice on medical and performance solutions as they see fit that might mean mentoring some of the staff in organizations so for example in the city football group they have clubs as you know globally around the world and i've visited probably probably five out of seven of those clubs and you go and when you say you do an audit it's not like an audit like an Ofsted audit it's more looking at what is their current practice is there any solutions you can offer them locally that may help them and they're very different to China to Manchester to Melbourne to to New York and so they should be so that what I do for them for the Scottish Football Association it's more of a critical friend to their head of performance how I challenge him to do his job better every day uh, with this Premier League I, I do all quite a few projects where I act as an elite uh, coach mentor. So I act as a mentor for one academy director. Uh, I also speak on the duty of care, not only for for, for scholars, but also for staff, very importantly. Uh, and I give advice on, on medical matters that may, may need a, a different opinion that's maybe objective, that has been around long enough to have seen a few things, but not everything. Mm-hmm. So just getting to the first point that I, I want to cover and, and just to give people a bit of insight into the things we've discussed. So current practice and what you see and um, kind of what you advise on and then moving on to a little bit on managing people and, and then finish off with the mentoring. So we'll we'll start we'll start on the current practice. Obviously, you see a lot of people working, whether it be from a performance aspect or a medical aspect. What are the what are the general themes? And, and this is probably tapping into your, like you say, your your um, your much experience over the 35 years of working in elite sport. What, what are the big changes across? What were the big changes or are the big changes across them 35 years that you see? Just a bit of a summary. A summary is, first of all, the changes are great. And I think people who, who yeah. don't embrace change, you've got a problem. Change management is massively important to manage. And if I just go back 35 years, I was a physiotherapist, I was a strength and conditioning coach, I was a psychologist. I did a little bit of nutrition. I occasionally laid out kit, which sounds ridiculous, but that was the way it was then. <laughs> but, but, but the advantage yeah. of that was it meant I had a little bit of a knowledge in each. Now, did it mean I became an expert in anything like some of the modern-day practitioners? Probably not. I probably became pretty good at assessment, diagnosis, and treatment. But what it meant was when, I became, when it came into lead departments with all these different skill sets, it meant I could probably ask probing questions because I had a little, and I had a little understanding of them. I mean, initially when, you know, S&C became involved, sports science, nutrition, it's a bit scary because you suddenly think these people are coming to take my job. And then suddenly, you know, you wake up one day and you realise actually these people are going to make my job better because they're actually better than I am at it. And so you learn to embrace that. And leadership is about, and that's what I've done recently or, or in the last few years, embrace the qualities and expertise of others, but make sure they're pointing in the one direction, which is hopefully to enhance a club's brand. So therefore, the, they, they play the best possible football. Players become available and thrive in their their career and everyone's happy, which is not always the case because you know we've reached that stage now where we're getting some practitioners who probably think they're bigger than players. And we're not. You know, we are in the background. The stage performance is all about players. So I think the biggest change is the growth in the number of staff. Do I think that's a good thing? It's a fantastic thing. However, my big however is, is everyone rowing the boat in the same direction? And quite sometimes at clubs, there are too many people interested in themselves rather than the bigger of the club, in my view. <laughs> 
That's one thing that I was thinking actually today. Um, was this? Uh, this is. A, I think this is a made-up word. I'm not quite sure it's an official word, but celebritization of of staff. And I'm I'm 100% all for kind of pushing the practitioner, pushing practitioners, and and obviously emphasizing the great work that people do, or the the promotion that someone gets, or the the job move that someone gets. But it was in like in previous years you'd get news from independent news channels that when a manager moved or a player moved. And now it's like head of performance. You get in that seems to be everywhere when someone moves on. Then now it's like if an under twelve S and C coach moves, it's like people are dis- it's been discussed and it's like wowzer. And it, that, for me, that just emphasises. And honestly, that's great in a, in one way, but in another way, it just like it just celebritises this and it it makes that the kind of tracksuit chasers even it just emphasises that even more to me. That's just my view. What do you think? I, I, I couldn't agree more with you, and I think it's then done for all the reasons. I think, you know, someone once said to me, why did I get involved in elite sport? Because I like to help people. But in my next form of life, I know I'll treat some private patients who are 75-year-old veteran fell runners, and I love treating them too. And I think it's, you know, I've always thought, you know, you know, the modern physio has a lot of exposure on television, and that's quite dangerous to a point because, you know, some of their decisions are scrutinised by everyone. And if you've ever sat on the edge of a pitch and had to make a, a quick decision, it's not easy. And I think it's the same for the S&C coaches taking the warm-up. And you actually see, and let's be totally honest, you see it and I see it, there are some of these people almost competing. My warm-up's more fancy than yours and my running technique <laughs> is better than yours. And really, is it that important? At the end of the day, we're there to provide a service and one day we'll be gone. And I think you've got to remember what's most important, in my opinion, and the only my opinion is what you leave behind. Do you leave behind a, a level of a service that the next person can take the baton further and do the job better than you, which is what you should want? Or do you leave such a mess that someone's got to come in and hire people, fire people and change everything? And, you know, that's that's a, that's a, that's a probably a mark on how you've done the job. And I think the, the this new sort of sort of head of performance it's a vital position, in my opinion. Should it be a medical member? Should it be an S&C? Should it be a psychologist? Should it be a performance analysis? To me, it doesn't matter who it is, as long as they have an appreciation of leadership, understanding people, understanding process, uh, and actually know the values of the club and can they embrace them and do it in a manner that ultimately really, you know, leadership should be seen and not heard. Do you often come across that conversation of the head of performance role, whether it should be a sports scientist or a medical oh, yes. or a, or yeah. a <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, you do. You Listen, yeah. there's a yeah. massive controversy in that because a lot of medics get a little bit uncomfortable. How can an S&C mm. be in charge of a medic? Well, they can, and I don't have an issue with it. What can't happen is an S&C can't take charge of medical governors. Now, that's a different issue, but actually they can still lead because at the end of the day, the head of medical in a football club will report probably to the sporting director. So why can't he report to a sports scientist? Of course he can. It's a matter of the person and the skill set what, what the sports scientists or SSC or psychologists must understand, there are probably certain things medically they can't discuss. And I don't think an SNC should ever be telling uh, a medic of where to refer a person for an ACL reconstruction. That shouldn't be the medical opinion's autonomous decision, but they should be judged on it too. And so, therefore, having SNCs in charge of performance staff, being medics, is no problem to me. There is one or two medics I know who have some reservations, but I think that's just their own insecurities. Yeah, a bit of personal pride, new kid on the block type of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Listen, I've been led by many different people in any walks of life, and what do, what do you look for in a leader? You look for someone in a leader who understands the organisation, someone who seems to put their staff first, someone who is always available to listen, and actually has an understanding of your profession, can challenge it, but actually, you know, leave you to run it. And I, I, I remember at Manchester City, we we took on in the academy at the same time I started, a guy called Matt Cook, who's now worked with Patrick Vieira in New York and is in Nice with Patrick now. And Matt was one of the best SNCs at producing great spreadsheets and numbers and details. And I mean, and, and I, you know, give him total autonomy to run the area and give me the information he made me so much better at what i i did by having him there and yes i was in charge of him did he know more about snc than me of course he did but that's what you know a good leader will allow people to flourish in their area we'll challenge them of course but we'll support them at times too mm-hmm. 
So in, in your experience of going around and seeing lots of practitioners in your in this consultant's role, but also of yeah. course the 35 years having worked yeah. with people and people moved on. More recently, is there any current trends that you see across practitioners? One thing that comes to mind, and this is not a positive or negative, it just comes to mind instantly, is the acute chronic and yeah. the, the acute chronic ratio and how people kind of went to that and it was everywhere and then all of a sudden it's, it's kind of swinging back. It's swinging back the way and it's kind of interesting socially to see how that plays out. But is there any uh-huh. current trends that you see? I think, the load, I think the load management such a big area in football. And, you know, people often say to me, you know, you know, our, our main aim is to reduce injuries. My worry when that's the first aim, because surely the, the first aim should be to enhance performance. And I think if you do, I think Dave Redding spoke about this the other day when he was talking about if, well, if we don't push the physical barriers, you know, how tolerant do we know players are? And I'm a great believer in, in young ages, you know, players need load. But load... The problem we've got at the moment, in my opinion, is, you know, load is measured by GPS, but it doesn't measure load. All it does is measure physical output. And load is much more than just physical output. It's emotional load. It's it's mental load. It's actually social load, what's going on in players' life. And I worry sometimes when I see sports scientists, you know, beggaring to say load should be reduced just on numbers. I think the numbers that are produced should sort of almost induce a conversation. So I slightly worry, are we are we limiting load? Because really physical capacity is 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 could be endless in some people and it could be limited in others. And I just worry slightly we're a little bit sometimes too dictated by numbers. I think the numbers I had an example of it recently when I was in a club and there was a manager and an S&C coach debating should a player train or not. And they had a spreadsheet in front of them with, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 metrics. And they were debating for 20 minutes, should this player train or not? And they looked at me, what would you do? I went, have you thought about going and asking the player? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, you know, and don't get me wrong, the metrics showed there was something to have a conversation with. But surely to goodness, a conversation would actually probably help that. But don't get me, I'm not saying don't sort of count the metrics but how do you use the metrics and actually don't dehumanize them i think all they are is a dashboard to tell you maybe something's in danger but maybe there's a good reason and i think again we've got to not you know not devalue human contact because i've often said it as practitioners as as sports scientists as medical staff are are we really pure scientists because we're not it's not a pure science it's the summation of so many parts of science but actually performance is art. But actually we need to apply scientific principles to that. So please, please don't think I don't believe in, in A technology and objective markers. I believe in them massively. But I'm also an artist when I know when to throw them out the window. The performance enhancement versus injury risk reduction as as the first primary goal is one thing that I'd like to like to tap into. Do, is that I know you you were saying it's worrying if injury reduction is the is the first thing on the list. Some some people's argument to that would be because of extent you know fixtures, Saturday Tuesday constantly constantly constantly, that the for performance enhancement almost does fall down the list, and actually just keeping these guys fit does become the top of the list. Is that something that you'd prescribe to or not? I think, I think I think the key is first of all, are you aligned to? what the manager and the club are actually aspiring to achieve. So, for example, I was in Spain recently at a club and they had a list of the the club that had actually picked up the most injuries, you know, to the least club. So there's 20 20 clubs listed from 1 to 20. And the club that had the most number of injuries last season in Spain was Barcelona. However, they were the most successful. And so sometimes, you know, you have to pay a price for success Uh, and players are not robots and they break down. Now, what I'm trying to say is I think it's very important you sit down with the manager, you sit down with the relevant people and discuss what you're trying to achieve. So when you see some new managers, and I think everyone noticed it when the likes of Jurgen Klopp and when Pochettino came into Spurs, in the short term, they had a spike in injuries because these guys come in and say, we're going to work harder. Now, my advice to them would be, is there any key players you would like us to protect or do you want to just go for it for all? Because sometimes they want to use this as an opportunity to see who is actually going to be able to last for them. And I think, again, you know, generally I think we should be judged on where we finish in the league, not 
And at the end of the day, yes, we would like to keep as many players as available as possible. And I do think that's an individual approach. But I think, again, I see a lot of SNCs and physios preparing presentations to new managers of how they deliver the service. Well, I would never do that until I spoke to the manager to find out how he wants it. Because he might want, you know, I've worked for, what, three major football clubs. And yet, and each of them has had maybe three or four different managers. So therefore, my job changes every time. But the first question is, how do you see medicine? Do you want conversations in the morning? Do you want them in the afternoon? Do you want me to text you information? Do you ever want a formal meeting? When do you, how do you like it? How do you want players to come back from uh, into matches? Do you want to train two days before you play? Do you want them to be able to, for example, perform on the day of the match and they've been out for six weeks? Now, that changes the rehabilitation conditioning, but that's not my job to tell them how to do it. My job is to almost meet the needs of them in the best possible way. And if there's dangers or there's things that give me red traffic lights, of course I'm going to warn them. But actually... That sometimes they know that. And I think it's a matter of us working with them, not against them. And again, I see some clubs, it's almost, you know, there's a coaching department, there's a medical department, there's a there's a coach, there's a SNC department. Well, where we work best is where we actually work in the middle of that together, but we discuss it and we actually understand each other. That's that that kind of that kind of comment has come up quite a lot over the last two hundred and 50 odd podcasts in, in that I've done, but how, how, how do we make that a reality? So everyone is together, like you say, and singing off the same hymn sheet. I think you've got to listen. I think you've got to understand the pressure that a modern manager is under. So I, I always remember when Tony Mulberry came into Middlesbrough and Tony had said to me at the first meeting, hi Grant, pleased to meet you. He said, just to let you know, Grant, I, I have a bad relationship with most physios. I fall out with them quite quickly because they don't provide the information I want. I went, it's interesting. What information do you want, Tony? He said, well, I like to come in the medical meeting first thing in the morning, assuming you have one. I said, yeah, we do first thing because I like to know what's happening and they don't want really to talk with me. They told me that's just for the medical staff. I said, Tony, come into the first five minutes of the meeting every morning. Then after that, when we get into the detail, well, I don't want to know that, then you can go. Grant, I'll be happy with that. You know, a month later, Tony and I are playing golf in an afternoon because he invited him out. Grant, you know, we're getting on really well. And, you know, but that's all he was was interested. And, and, and I love interested people, but I also spoke to him in depth about what were his philosophies from training. What did he expect? Did he realise the consequences if everyone trains at that? Ah, I never realised that, Grant. So you try and form, again, and that's what I say, people often think, you know, you form a relationship with someone, not because of who they're qualified, how well they've done. It's actually how they are as a person. So you've got to build, first of all, empathy. Through empathy, you can build trust. But until you've got that, you cannot influence anyone. And and sadly, we have a lot of physios, S&Cs, think, I've got an MSC, you know, I've got a doctorate, you should want to listen to me. Well, quite frankly, it actually doesn't mean a lot once you're into that working place. What you've got to do is build trust, and it takes time. And you've also sometimes got to show your own humility when, I also remember, again, Dick Advocat at Rangers, we had a, one of the players who had trained with him in the morning. I didn't want him to train in the afternoon. And I probably wrongly told the player, I don't think he should train. So Dick came in, I want him to train Grant. And I went, well, I don't think he should. And the player said, well, Grant doesn't want me. And he's training Grant. You know, I, need to, I need him to train. And he went out and trained. And cut a long story short, he broke down after five minutes. And I went into the office with, uh, with Mr. Advocat the next day and was talking about it. And I never even mentioned it to him. I just said, well, he now be out for an extra couple of days. He went, Grant, Thanks for being so honest with you. You've said the way you've I really respect you because you told me you didn't expect didn't want him to train. He broke down. My fault. We can work. And so you've got to sometimes be able to eat humble pie and not go to a manager. Well, I told you it would break down. I mean, what, you know, what, who do you think you are? You know, they've got a right to try things at times. And I think if you build that honest relationship up with them and, and show your value, by what you do, and sometimes I'm prepared to say, okay, I don't know that, I'll learn. It's not something I've practiced before. I've normally done it this way, but I might learn something here. I, I had, again, that with Roberto Mancini. I, I had a spell back with the first team at Manchester City uh, after uh, a, a, a doctor who had been there decided to leave because of some of the difficulties. And I can totally understand why I left, but I was asked by the club to go back and lead the first team. And Roberto would come to me with a player that had got a, a rec fem tear, which is quite a nasty thing in a footballer because they tend to be out for six to eight weeks. And he'd ask me how long this player will be out for. 
And I told him, I said, I think he'll be out for probably, he'll probably not train properly for six weeks, but he'll probably start football training maybe at four or five. That's ridiculous, Grant. I'm sending him to Italy. We'll get him back in 10 days. And I just said to him, listen, send him to Italy because if you can get him back in 10 days, I'll visit because I've obviously got something wrong with my practice because I couldn't get him back in 10 days. And the staff again were a bit, oh, this could be a bit dicey. And he came back and he actually, the very first training session, he came back after 12 days and he joined in with the team. They did jogging around the pitch and he trained. And Roberto came to me and smiled and said, see, you can train. Now, the next day he struck a ball, tore his thigh and then was out for 12 weeks. But who was proved right or wrong? And sometimes you have to, you know, at the end of the day, the player was backing the manager, not me. But you've sometimes got to put yourself in a position that, you know, you don't have to say I told you so, but the facts speak for themselves. But after that, I had a lot more respect from the manager. Because you then maybe respect your opinion more. Because sometimes these people are, are testing you and you have to know when to back off, when to stand up. And, and again, Let's be totally honest. You don't learn that at university. You often get that by, like me, having a lot of grey hair by getting it wrong. And I've certainly got plenty wrong, you know. So you, you know, you, you, you are you prepared to analyse yourself? I keep saying to people, you know, one of my favourite statues is the thinker, and it's someone looking at themselves, reflecting. And can you, at the end of the day, look in the mirror and say, "I did everything in my power to get that right"? Because often we don't. We we take shortcuts. We make assumptions. And I'm a great reflector, and you know more than you know we could talk for the next two days and everything i've got wrong <laughs> so a lot about injuries there what in terms of you as a, as a practitioner when it comes to um minimizing injury risk what's your what's your overall philosophy i think first of all doing it doing an analysis of the player of what they've had in the past you know so is there anything that you know the biggest predisposition for future injuries previous injury is there anything a player has done that particularly helps them i think it's definitely worth doing some form of physical profile but i also think it's important to look at their games record and i think you know previous games played is often a good indicator for future games and i think you know how 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 have they been loaded so loads important not just physical load but actually look at the depth of the load. What type of games have they played in? How intense were the games? And I don't just mean from a physical angle. I mean from a mental angle, an emotional angle. Can they play games back to back? And I think you've got to almost do a, a 360 feedback on that player. And what's their attitude to risk? You know, are they prepared? You know, some players are prepared to play with pain. You've got to. You know, and again, I used to say that to the young players at Manchester City. My, my aim in life is to be able to help you learn how to play 500 games of professional football. But I promise you one thing, you'll have pain in your body in 450 in some part of it. But hopefully I can teach you what's a normal pain to play with and what's not an abnormal. So Dom's is your friend. You know, don't don't try and rub it away with a foam roller. It's quite normal to have very stiff calves after a certain training session. It's actually a nice, should be nice. Get used to that pain, enjoy that pain. If it's unilateral and it's in one area, why? You know, so so from my angle, it's almost an allowing good SNCs to profile players, good physios to profile them, but then share the profile. You know, we did away almost with medical profiles at Manchester City and we called them just performance profiles. They had medical information in, they had performance information, but there's also psychological information. You know, what are the what are the risk strategies of players? Because you know, again, some players will 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 will, will gamble, and what I mean by that is they will they will they will they will risk they will take risk in their own health because they want to play and because they realise there's a limited time. And some of them will tell you, I've got a lot of time to retire once I'm 35. And you know, that, therefore, those players tend to play more games. And the you know, I've had some players say to me, I can't play unless my body is pain free. And they're the players that, when you look back, have probably played 150 games at 35. And I think sometimes... Are, sorry, carry on. Oh, oh, no, 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 carry on, Grant. I, I no, no, I, I was just saying that. I, I think, you know, I, I have... I, I, and I think sometimes younger physios and, and S&C sometimes, you know, have to be careful how we talk with players, you know, report every injury to me. Now, I want them to report everything they feel, but I also don't feel the physio should treat everything he sees. And what I mean by that is that's normal to feel that tightness. Now, go and do a recovery session. I also sometimes get worried when I see SNCs in the younger groups in the academy systems having, you know, match day minus one, match day plus one, two preparation. What's that all about? You know, these are just young boys going through load. Why, you know, we're almost encouraging them to have to recover 
from a game at the age of 14, recovery should be going out to train again at that age. Now, I don't mean inadvertently high volumes, but we're almost encouraging children to expect them to need to play one game a week and recover. And yet you get to the Premier League, you'll be playing on a Saturday, you'll be playing on a Tuesday, you'll be playing on a Sunday, you'll go away and play international football, you'll arrive back on a Thursday at nine o'clock at night and you're playing on a Saturday at 12. Now, there's no physiological recovery for that system. The most important thing is, can you mentally cope with it? And if you get used to higher volumes of training and also sometimes random volumes of training at a younger age, you know, you, you, you almost begin to quite like the, the sort of the sort of the doms feeling it gives you because it's a bit like, yeah, I'm working. That's good. And it's a positive rather than, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do about it? When, when were you at Rangers, Grant? What, what year? I was oh, there ooh, 19, I went there 19, end of 1994 to 2003. So I had quite a three managers, Walter Smith, uh, outstanding manager and person, Dick Advocate, both the same. And then Alex McLeish came in and Alex was a good guy, didn't really have the same philosophy as me. So he moved me on. So that was my first taste of being moved on in football, which again, you know, the time's difficult, but it's good for you. Makes you realise you're not as important as you think you are. So with them early days with Gaza? Yes, yes, I gathered the whole time. Yes, I uh, gathered the Maverick. I, I, I learned masses from dealing with him and treating him, partly because he was such a Maverick personality and, you know, for obvious reasons, pretty mentally mixed up at times. But a lovely, you know, gifted player. Again, I mean, the big games, some of the big games we played, he never warmed up and he would sometimes just play computer golf with me because I used to get almost too nervous <laughs> beforehand. But I was more nervous playing golf with him, thinking, is this the right way to warm up? And uh, again, we had a wonderful manager in Walter Smith who knew that probably was better for him. I did. That was a bit like, what are we doing? Is this the right thing to do? But Walter, being far more experienced, knew exactly how to deal with that. And, you know, there are some games, Gaza at quarter to three was sat there in his underpants on the 11th hole of Augusta playing golf with me. And, you know, five minutes later was in his kit going out winning matches. Yeah. Didn't, didn't make a lot of sense. But with Mavericks, it does not make a lot of sense. And I think, you know, we have to sort of, you know, would that happen today? Probably not, but I do believe managing Mavericks is different. And I, I love managing Mavericks because I think Mavericks are are sometimes the people who win games, the Kevin Petersons of this world. You know, they, they have a lifespan and so they do eventually overstay their welcome, but managing them's fun. And Gaza was great fun and a great, you know, I remember when he when he damaged his ankle badly, I, I for three months put his ankle into plaster every day. So when he went home, he wouldn't go fishing at night. Now, I've never done that with a player in my life, and it's never written in a medical textbook, but we found, because if, if you put an immobilising boot on, he would just take it off, but he couldn't in plaster because he'd sink. Yeah. So, again, go back to the fact, and I've often said this, you know, treat the person, not the footballer. And actually, if you understand the person, and we're, and he wasn't meaning anything badly, he was a... He was, a, a, you know, a great guy to have around a club. You know, every day was a different day, but, you know, he his intent was right. And, you know, I, I learned so much about dealing with maverick personalities, particularly watching the likes of Walter deal with them, because he, you know, if you look at Gaza's playing record, it was better at Rangers than any other club. He scored more goals in, in, in a, you could say it was maybe easier football, but I don't think it was because we were trying to win and we won nine championships in a row. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the the performances that he achieved was down to an outstanding leader in Walter Smith and the rest of us, you know, following the the, the, the advice he gave us. And we, we sang the same tune. Mm-hmm. So go, going back to that time, and in terms of the stuff that you've been talking about, in, in players understanding what doms are and, and things like that, is, is, there a, is there a contrast between the modern player... And what they, what the kind of information or the insights that they want, and advice from someone like yourself, compared to back then when there was was there a little bit more intuition? Were they? I, I, I you think, know, I, I, I think there's certain players. I also remember when I went to Rangers, uh, and and the treatment room was a little bit old. And to be fair, Walter let me. We did it up straight away, and I put a big notice board on it, and I said to Walter and Archie, "I'm going to put some." posters up here about things like nutrition and I'm going to put things up about hydration and about you know conditioning articles little things I was going to be reading there was a, back in the days there was something called peak performance which is just a little review almost newspaper the likes of Nick Grantham started their career writing and things like that and I used to just put it up on the board and I can remember Walter and Archie saying ah, I don't think the players will really read that Grant but they did they loved it because actually they suddenly started to realize well actually 
if I care a little bit more about what I eat, I might be able to play longer. If I play longer, I'll earn more money. And again, you know, you've got to tie into what what is why they're there. And they love playing football, but they like the lifestyle. They also like the income. And 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 so players became more inquisitive. And I think we've now gone the full circle where we we actually just tell players what to do. Uh, and, you know, this is the right food to eat. This is the right thing to do. So probably, not probably, 100%, they are doing much more athletic training now than they've ever done. Their their diet is much better. But do they fully understand the reasons? I'm not sure. But I used to spend a lot of time in the Manchester Academy myself explaining to young boys why. So, for example, I often remember where a young 14-year-old boy dislocated his kneecap and he'd just seen a specialist and I was sitting down having my lunch with him, just having an informal conversation about his recovery. And I noticed on his plate, there was a piece of chicken, there was a bit of pasta, but no veg. And, 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 and afterwards, and I just said to him, why don't you eat veg? And he went, I don't like the taste of it. I said, but if I told you by eating that, you might get back two weeks quicker because it might help your body. What will you do? He stood up, hopped over to the canteen, filled his plate and ate it. And he said, I don't like carrots, but if I get back two weeks earlier, I'll tolerate them. And I think sometimes we forget the value of teaching, you know, what is nutrition? Nutrition is your long-term health policy for better performance. So therefore, every time you go to, and I used to say this to parents, if you go to McDonald's after training for your son once a week every year for 50 weeks, we times that by 10 years, that's 500 bad meal choices. Your son has already got a 0.01 chance of being a successful Premier League player. What have you done to it? So I'm a great believer in turning things like nutrition, physicality into maybe their why. And actually, by doing that, you know, at, at, at Manchester City, we used to give parents nutritious menus. You can go and spend less money in Asda across the road and feed your family for four than if you go to McDonald's. And, this is, and we used to teach them how to cook that. So therefore, hopefully, not all of them, but some of them would go and do it. And I think even in those young days, players started to take an interest. I remember Richard Goff in particular, you know, uh, 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 who would be a professional today as well as he was then and a great athlete. And I remember getting the first heart rate monitor uh, and again, putting on Richard in training. And I was just experimenting. I was, you know, I knew a little bit about heart rate and it's where it should be. And, but I didn't know that much about it. And then we started doing the bleep test with it and he was interested. And he would then come in and say, you know, you know, that session grant wasn't that difficult, but, you know, and we would look at it and we didn't have things in red and green and yellow zones in those days but we were we were the sort of the pioneers for it and it was it was fantastic well it's brilliant to see where it's gone now but it was lovely to be at the beginning of it because it didn't exist but we were you know and again Walter was like yeah give it a try you know it might help it might not help was Richard Goff a centre-half? Yes. Big centre-half. Yes, he was a centre-half, yes. Yeah. He started, a, he was yeah. a, oh, a Scottish player, but he was sort of born in South Africa, father Scottish, mother Swedish, started at Dundee United, then went to Tottenham Hotspurs, captain them in 1987 Cup final against uh, Coventry when they lost 3-2. And then he went back to Rangers and was captain of Rangers for, for what, I think about 11 years and, you know, was captain when we won nine championships in a row. And, and I, I, I I've spoke to Richard for a few months, but I will literally, he's in America now. But again, with, with these sort of players, you know, I just, I just, I just emailed him about something and we ended up exchanging about 15 emails in a day about different things. You know, you, you, I think the one thing I've noticed then, because you were with these players really in the trenches for a long term, you know, you built up a, it's like now, like if I, I'm sure if I was to email Richard tonight, he'd reply. And you would, you know, you, and when you meet, you look at each other in the eye, and you've, you know, you've been something through together. You know, I've watched him walk out at Parkhead with, you know, every Celtic fan booing, hissing, and he'll <laughs> he'll stand there and take it, and he'll make them quiet by not even saying a word. And when you see that, and when you're part of that, you know, those are the special moments, and you know, those are those are why I got involved in football. And was I there? Yes. Was I in front of the newspapers? No. Did I need to be? No. But I was there. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Grant. I hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more around managing people and plugging the skills gaps in young practitioners and also some uh, chat on mentoring, which is a big part of what Grant does now with young practitioners um, in different football clubs, different organisations, um, and even some in, in, in the business world. So just before we do get into part two with Grant, I just want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. 
So fatigue scions have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes uh, a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're gonna undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. Also sponsoring the Pacey Performance podcast today is Omega Wave. So Omega Wave is an, the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train for both the brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy levels and autonomic nervous system balance, it allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize training and then optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position, and this data can be used by the medical practitioner to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. So this measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to their windows of trainability concept. So Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport, military and law enforcement agencies and are now the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So if you want to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, which is omegawave.com and on their social media channels. So let's move this on to the, uh, the managing people uh, point that we, we discussed right at the start. So in terms of processes, I'm interested in how, obviously you were the person um, kind of managing from, from the start, but increasingly so uh, had more and more people to manage. And in terms of developing processes, to put put in place to actually effectively manage twenty five people or whoever however many it was at Man City, what were them what were them processes that you put in place and can you communicate them with us? Yeah, I think I think the first of all you've got to have a philosophy and the philosophy can't just be yours. You've got to involve other people in forming that. So it's an ever evolving philosophy. And I think then what you've got to do is you've got to ask people of how, you know, what are we trying to achieve? How do you want to achieve it? And what are the best processes for that? And then how are you going to measure it? Because it's important to try and measure things. I think that's for the group areas. Then individually, you know, I think every every member of staff should have their own development plan. And that should be appraised every six months, but it's almost appraised every day. What I mean by the every six months is I'm a, we did PDR, proper formal PDRs at Manchester City, but the end of the season, it's almost very informal for me. And in fact, all mine were occurred in a dugout. I used to take them for a coffee and have a chat because my feedback would occur every single day because I knew what we were trying to achieve. I knew what they were trying to achieve. But I also didn't want to tell them just how to achieve it. I wanted them to have some poetic license to try and feel as if it was their process. And I'm a great believer, our younger generation, and I believe in this massively, they need to own the process but they also have to be held accountable, but also be given praise when it goes well. And again, I think as a leader, you shouldn't really take the credit for much when it goes right. Give it out to the staff. But when it goes wrong and you've actually been part of it, learn how to take it. Feedback information, but that's your responsibility. Uh, and so I think it's important, you know, and again, you know, for me, I went to, I was in Manchester for, what, seven years. I think I was happy with our operation and our processes and our people probably year three, four. You know, so it takes time. And it wasn't I didn't need to change a lot of people. Some people you need to take on a journey. You've got to understand that, you know, not everyone's 25, six years experienced, but they don't need to be. Some people are two years very experienced. 
and I'm a great believer again in it. I like to have people with different personalities. The last thing I want is 25 me's. That would be a disaster. You know, I want people who've got their own personality, their own take on things. I want people who are yellow, sunshine yellow, who can connect with players. I also want some empathetic green people. I want some blue people who understand processes. I can be fiery when I need to be, but I'm... My partner will tell you I'm naturally fiery. I'm not that naturally fiery. I've learned how to fire up when I need to, but I also don't mind an odd fiery people. But I like... I like a group of staff who are very different, but actually respect each other's differences and diversities. And I think, again, there, you know, there's not enough females in football. In my 28 staff in Manchester, we had about 11 females, which was fantastic. But I wanted, it's not I wanted more for the sake of it. I wanted the diversity. I wanted people who think differently, who could connect with the key stakeholders, which is sometimes the scholars, sometimes it's the coaches, sometimes it's the, the higher academy management or the club management. But I think it's it's then, as the leader, it's up to you to sell those processes to the, to the organisation of how you're going to do them so they back you. And once you've got that psychological safety, it's up to you to then empower the staff to do that. And when they feel supported to achieve it and they know you're going to support them, you can then challenge but, it, you know, there's not a ruler that says, you know, the first stage takes two months. I remember on the very first day in Manchester, there was a physiotherapist, who, a guy called Dave Williams, who's now rightfully left. He's married. He's got four children. He's left to lead a better life. And he was a brilliant servant for Manchester City. And on the first day, he challenged me. And I could see the other staff were horrified. I was delighted because he felt he could do. Now, he took another member of staff probably a year to be able to do that. But I knew he was more timid, but eventually he could do that, but he found it difficult. So what we did is we we decided to sort of get a picture of a Tasmanian devil, which was me. And when he, when he wanted to challenge me in a meeting, he would wave it. So I knew he wanted to challenge. Then I'd invite him in to talk because he found it difficult to do that. And so you, whereas the other one was like, Grant, I don't agree with that. Good, well, tell me why. Well, this other one found it more difficult. And again, as the leader, you've got to get to know your staff and understand when they'll challenge, how they'll challenge. Some will do it in a meeting, some won't. But some, if they're encouraged, like the day before, I'm going to say this in a meeting, what's your response? Have a think about it now. But in the meeting, if that's what you think, I want you to say it. So you've prepared them. Other folk will do it instantly. So again, I learned the lesson from Walter Smith. Don't treat people like you want to be treated. Treat people like they want to be treated. There's a significant difference and we often get it wrong. And I think it's so important to get to know that person understand their journey, where they've been as an SNC, who they've worked with. And some of the staff I interview, I've interviewed for jobs, I can tell you who they've worked with because there are many clones of them and I don't like that. I like, I'd like to think there's a little bit of me in some of the staff I've worked with, but I want them to be themselves predominantly. Mm-hmm. How much influence did, and, and in case anyone didn't know, the, 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 um, the sunshine yellow and the empathetic green is from the insights profiling. How, how much of a how much of an influence was was that process on? Did you do sorry? Just rephrase that. Did you do that before you employed someone or after when they were in the team? No, no, no. I would, I, I would, what I would do is I would I would bring bricks into a meeting and ask them to describe themselves. And if they actually got the bricks in the wrong way, I'd tell them because you often do because some people then try and make it up. Oh, I'm this. Well, I've just listened to you for an hour. Mm-hmm. You're not that. <laughs> and then they go, oh, right. Yeah, I'm not, am I? No, well, just I'd far rather you be truthful. So I think what I would normally do, I would do it after about six months of them being employed. Or what we would occasionally do, do it straight away, then do it six months later and see the change. Because staff initially want to fill in the answers that what they think you're looking for. Uh, and, and again, I didn't want that. I mean, and again, I, I know, like myself, my personality, I'm maybe, and maybe I've developed this, but I mean, I'm, pro, I'm predominant. Well, actually, I can lead with any colour I want. And, and that's what I've learned to do because it's important to be able to change in the setting you're in. However, my values don't change at all. You know, I understand, you know, I'm, I'm very much, you know, will want things to be fair for everyone. So therefore, you could predominantly say I'm probably green, but I value process, but I can lose my rag at times. And at times, I realize you've got to involve people. So, for example, when I was, I remember once being at Rangers, and it taught me a lot. I wasn't on the team pitch, and it never bothered me. And we got a new physio, and he was mortally upset for a year. He was not on the team pitch. And initially, I'm thinking, well, it doesn't matter to me. But what it taught me, it does matter to some people. So if it does matter to some people, go to the effort, because if that actually makes them happier and they do their job better, 
you know, nothing's happened. So again, it's learning to. So I, I, I like a collection of staff to be different, and 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 you know, you need your blue processes without a shadow of doubt. But you also, you know, sometimes need your energy yellow people who will come in and change a room. Because sometimes in football, a team's lost three games in a row. It doesn't need a cool blue process person to say, our stats are down. You need someone to come on and say, well, actually, our stats have been down, but there's only one way they can go. (laughs) Yeah. And so framing messages is very important. And again, it's one thing I see sometimes with younger practitioners, learning to frame things according to who they're dealing with is a very important skill. Just just going on to that subject of young practitioners, is there any... Any skills gaps that you see come up um, regularly with with young practitioners that you'd be able to share with us? Yeah, I think I think. Listen, I see much enthusiasm. I see probably a, a want to share a little bit too much of what they're doing on social media, which I think I think social media is a wonderful thing, and I'm the biggest advocate of it. But I don't think you need to show us exactly every exercise you're doing with specific players because I think there's certain amount of confidentiality. But I think I think the biggest thing I would say to most younger practitioners, just be patient. You know, you, you, you don't know what you don't know. And and sometimes you've got to go through some bad times to experience good times. And I think a lot of them, you know, you know, I speak to them, I want to be a performance director. Well you're twenty four. <laughs> Why is you know, that? Why, why is that, Grant? Why, why, why the acceleration? Is that something that's always been there, or is that something that's advertised? I, I, I think it's. I think it's partly the generation we've got now. Because listen, everything is instantaneous. You know, you can you can Google what you want. You can order every takeaway in the world, and it arrives at your doorstep. So we live in that instant gratification, and it's an expectation. And I think again, a lot of people think you know you can go and excel that that journey if you do a second master's or you do a PhD. Well, you can't because some of it some of it has to be learned. You know, some some of the stuff we learn is actually at the coal face, and sometimes it's when the coal face crushes. And I think you know some of my best learning lessons have you know like when I lost my job at Rangers when I was moved on by Middlesbrough. And you'd reflect on who you are, what you are, what you will, what you'll do next. So when I was interviewed at Manchester City, you know, I was very fortunate enough to be asked to apply for a role I didn't really want at Manchester City. So I didn't apply, but I applied for the academy role because that really interested me. And I had three excellent interviews at Manchester City who really, you know, interviewed correctly, which was great. And then they came to the point where they said, right, you've got five minutes to ask questions. I said, well, sorry, I've got 25 questions. Can come back for another day? <laughs> and they were, well, why have you got so many questions? Well, I, I, I need to know a few things about the organization to make sure, you know, we are compatible because you, I've, you've asked me a lot. So I've got a lot to, and it wasn't. A, and the last question on my, my list of 25 was the salary because the salary wasn't that important unless one to 24 was right. And again, I got asked a question at an interview that I know – I think 10 other people got asked, why am I the best person for Manchester City? And I answered the question the following, and I still maintain this, I don't know if I am the best person. All I can tell you is about my journey, my experiences, my strengths, my weaknesses, and I'll tell you them. Uh, but, and this is what I've got to offer. And if you think that fits your bill, I'd be delighted to come here. But if it's someone better, you better give them the job. And interestingly, the academy director told me two months later, everybody else answered that question by saying, I am the best person for the job and this is the reason why. But how would you know that? And I think, again, once you become a little bit more self-aware, you know, I know where I'm strong. I also know where I'm weak. I also know where I'm vulnerable. But actually, it doesn't make me bad at what I do. You know, it just makes me a human being who has worked in high performance but hasn't ever forgotten where he's come from. I'm a dyslexic boy who couldn't read or write very well, still can't really write that well now, can't read that well. But I am pretty articulate. You know, I'm, you know I, I've got an OBE. I've got things that haven't been given to many other people. But actually, I'm still a very humble person who wants to learn and I want to get better every day. And if I'm authentic and that comes across to staff, I think people will follow you. I didn't mention this at the start. I've, I've had 250-something 
episodes and never had an OBE grant. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. I, for, I, could, swear, for, for, I, I, I could swear and tell you what it means or what other people say. Listen, it was a fantastic honour and, 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 and I, 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 I shouldn't have mentioned it really, should I? Because it's a bit... No, I'm glad you did because I forgot. <laughs> no, well, don't, don't worry. But it, it, listen, it was a wonderful honour. And as I said to you, one of my... One of my favourite bits about getting the OBE was the train journey from, at that time, because I took my partner Sue down from Darlington to London. I met my two sisters to go to Buckingham Palace because my father was too ill to come to the thing. So again, the following day, I went to see my mum and dad, which was wonderful. But the journey down was just a reflection and of all those people who've helped you. And one of the things, again, I say this to younger practitioners, you know, if you think you're going to borrow a track on your own and be that sole crusader and get everything right. When it goes wrong, look around. There's not many people there. When you actually borrow that track and you involve people, you remain humble. You know, you admit your mistakes. When you look around for support, there's plenty of people there to help you. And I think, you know, again, so for younger practitioners, be humble enough. You know, you won't get everything right. You're not meant to. But if you learn from it, you know, you'll be a better person. And, you know, my OBE was a, you know, I, I, I'm so privileged and proud to have got that, and it's it's a great honour, but it actually makes me even more determined to sell or, or tell the messages I feel are important. But as I always say to all younger practitioners, if you're going to do something, do it your way, because when you get it wrong, look in the mirror. You know, sometimes in the past, if I didn't have the confidence to do something and I followed someone else's path when it didn't work, I was doubly frustrated. So have the courage to get something wrong, but you be humble enough to admit you've got it wrong. In terms of your measuring of impact of, of we'll go strength and conditioning coaches now because that's predominantly who'll be who'll be listening here. How do you measure the impact of the coaches so you can give them um, the necessary feedback in these um, in these in these meetings you're you're having with the uh, with the guys to to track their progress and and see what they're doing? How, how do you go about measuring that impact? I think, I think the key, first of all, is to remind each and every one of them that an integral part of performance. And I think, you know, that, you know, that wasn't always the case. You know, some clubs had them, some clubs didn't. And S&C coaches are an absolute vital part of the cog. But often the impact I'll say to them is you may never see it. It may be someone else. And don't be frightened of that. Yes, use measures and, you know, in, in, in S&C from field-based GPS data to gym strengthening programs, there's lots of data that will tell you you've had an impact but an impact on what? And the biggest thing I say to them is, you know, the biggest impact you can have. And when I see some of the, you know, the S&C coaches, I see have big impact on players. It's not just on, 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 on strength gains, but it's how they use those strength gain, gains on the pitch, how they recover better, how they lead a better life. And so again, you've got a bigger responsibility than just making people stronger and fitter. Uh, and the good S&Cs do it. But in the short term, you've got to have some measures. Uh, but also... The art of coaching, you know, isn't science, it's art. And so, again, it's trying to get them to develop some of their soft skills so they can understand that an inner, an inner child from Manchester or London will be completely different to a child from Newcastle or a, a child who's been to a, you know, a boarding school and can they adapt their style in order to understand the why of the player. And that's the, that's the trickier bit. You know, the, certainly I've, I've worked with many great S&Cs and, you know, they're, they're, they are very good at the technical aspect where, again, a, a lot of the work, and I work with, what, two, two privately at the moment, and their, their technical competence is excellent. And, you know, I couldn't improve that. They'd be coming to the wrong person. But I can improve their ability to deliver. I can improve their ability to connect with all stakeholders. So how do they, for example, convince you know, a chief executive, a Nord board's got value because a Nord board is an expensive piece of equipment. So why should I, why should I use one? Well, if you sell it to him that you'll, you know, you'll measure the eccentric strength of the players and if it goes up, we'll all be happy. He'll probably tell you to get lost. But if you tell him, if we actually increase the strength of the players, we have less time lost from the players, you'll spend less money on wages. He'll buy one. So, again, it's teaching them to understand the language of others. But as I say, it's an integral part of, thankfully, sports science and S&C in, 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 in soccer. But actually, I think the next traction, you know, I, I said 30 years ago, physios were the best thing in the world. You know, 15 years ago, S&Cs became the best thing in the world. Probably the new sexy bit is psychology, and they'll be the best thing for the next 10 years. The truth is we're all important. 
And actually, but the most important thing is the player and the club. And actually, if we can all understand to share that responsibility and, and collectively, you know, look back on have you influenced a player that he understands going to the gym is part of his daily programme and doesn't have to be forced there, you've been a great SNC. So coming on to our last point of mentoring, obviously that's something we've, we've, we've touched on a couple of times throughout. In terms of the mentee, how how should one go about finding someone or should it be a, a natural thing? Is it something that we should be looking to invest in in terms of like a monetary thing? Should we be looking to look, look into a friend? I'm just trying to navigate. It's quite a... It's quite a um... It's a difficult area because it, it can be formal. It can be up, up, it sort of, it can be sort of formal or, or, or informal. I'm a great believer in every big elite club should have maybe two or three critical friends in, in certain areas, maybe one medicine, one S&C, one sports science, one psychologist. And these people maybe come in maximum six days a year. But actually, they're also available for advice if required. And there's probably people, grey-haired people like myself, who, who can give that collective advice to a department. On an individual level, it depends what that person's looking to improve. So if, if an S&C wants to get better in their technical delivery in the gym, go and speak to Nick Grantham, not Grant Downey. You know, go and speak to Chris Barnes. If it's about S&C work, if it's about that, that type of delivery. If it's about soft skills and understanding yourself and wanting to improve and your ability to coach, then people like myself have a part to play. But there's plenty others. There's not just me out there. There's lots of them. But I think it depends on what... So the key comes, and I've done this with a few people. I've sat down and said, what are your needs analysis? And when they actually write down what they need, it's a bit like, I'm not the right person for you. And I'm I'm in a nice stage of my life. I don't need to be saying yes to everything. So it's quite... But I will always point someone in the right direction. Uh, and so I think it depends on what that person's needs are. But most importantly, you want them to identify them themselves. And should organisations pay for them? The answer is yes, they should. But but are you as a member of staff? I've got. But again, the people who I mentor, some of the organisations pay, some of them pay themselves. The ones who pay themselves are the ones who, who actually get more out of it because they're investing in themselves. So I, I think it's a... It's a difficult one to know which way it should be, but there's lots of different forms. But I actually think moving forward, I spoke to a doctor recently at a club and he was pretty adamant the only way his his quality of life would be improved at the club if they gave him a significant pay rise. And I challenged him on it and said, I don't agree with you. And he went, why not? I said, well, what's the problem in your life? I'm in every day. Well, what's an extra £40,000 a year going to give you, I asked. And he went, well, you know, it'll keep my wife happy. It won't because you're not going to be there. What I would suggest, I'll speak to the board and ask them to give you an extra 30K, but actually you're not going to get a penny. What that will do is it will bring another doctor in for one and a half days a week. You'll get one day's holiday. You'll then job share half a day and you'll spend two, one day with your children. Now, I think through the duty of care and mental well-being, that would be better than a significant pay rise. But that's just my thoughts. How did that go down? Uh, initially... Not that well, but then, as I said, but but but, but went fine with the board. The board were happy with it. But what he he wasn't. Then when he went away and thought about it, he went. I think it's a great idea. And again, what you learn with people is sometimes I'm going to say something and I don't want a reaction because your immediate action might not be your long term reaction. Think about things. And I noticed. I think it was Brian English did a fantastic thing. Who's a doctor at Middlesbrough, where where I used to work, and Brian wasn't there at the time. But Brian did a great thing a number of years ago, and I spoke to the staff about this. But he said, I can't promise you any pay rises in the next two or three years as staff, but I will get an extra member of staff, so I can guarantee you all one day off and two half days a week. And the staff there now work five days a week. They get one full day and two half days. Now, I think that's brilliant management. And I applaud Brian for for that type of management of staff because, I mean, I go back to my days at Rangers where I regularly work six weeks without a day off. That's stupid. Should I, should, do I deserve a badge for that or a, a clout around the head? I think you should clout me around the head. It was stupid. You know, hence, in March and May, I'll probably be making daft decisions. You know, So for me, the long term might be more staff and slightly less money, but actually you may do the job longer and you might enjoy it longer. Superb. Well, we're coming to the hour that I promised that I'd keep you. 
where is the where's the best place Grant, for people to go and learn a little bit more about you i know it's i know it discussed it's not about the website and the kind of things that you do but people want more information where's the best place for people to go people want more information i do have my own website which is what is it again www.grantdowney.co.uk you're welcome to look that up if people want to fire me questions i'm always happy to you know again i was taught a, a very early lesson by walter smith reply to every letter you get you don't know who that person is and you're in a privileged position and I also remember a letter I got from a fan and it was a, a straight because most fans at those days just wrote in and abused you because they had too many injuries but you replied to them all and told them what you were trying to do about it but one fan wrote to me and he's just said Grant I don't know if you can help me or what should I do I'm a season ticket holder at Ibrox my mother's had a severe stroke I have to look after her I can't come to games and I'm feeling depressed is there anything you could do to help me and initially I'm thinking what could I do to help him I've got I don't know how to treat stroke patients but then I just remembered a good friend of mine was a physio in in a neurological unit in a hospital and so I phoned her and she knew some place that actually sent out people to sit with people in their homes to relieve these people of the work and so therefore I put the two of them in touch and this person started coming back to football again and I think you forget everyone has to start somewhere I've, I've had every student in who's ever written to me into a club to speak to or even have an open night where I can't have them in to see what we do with the players but I can have an open night and invite them in and we all start our journey somewhere and if we all think we're a little bit too big to help someone, I think we've lost our own identity and I'm a great believer in, you know, I was helped to learn how to read or write without that person, without, you know, I got taken out of mainstream education, couldn't read or write. I had to go to what was called in those days a remedial school. You know, a year later, my reading had improved massively, my right, but I couldn't have done it. You know, Mr. Phillips a teacher recognised something in me, don't know what, but recognised something in me that could maybe make a difference. Now, that may be stuck with me the rest of my life. So if I can help anyone to do their job a little bit easier, help them, I'm not going to come and do their job for them. But if I can make, so if it's just a sounding board, and sometimes I just listen to people and just say, yeah, it sounds like you want to do the right thing. And that's all we need occasionally. I'm available for that because... You know, we all need it in life. And I think if you can embrace that in life, it becomes easier and happier. And as I said, yeah, I'm lucky. I've I've generally had probably two bad Mondays when I've been sacked in sport. But actually, it's part of the business. And, you know, I, I, I don't regret any of it. And would I change any of it? No, not one bit. Excellent. Well, Grant, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. It really, really has. And oh, thank you for pleasure. sharing some of, the, some of the uh, experience and knowledge over the last... 35 years in, in pro sport. So, yeah, thank you again, and uh, we'll keep in touch. My pleasure. You take care. Thanks. Bye -bye. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for tuning in to episode 254 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, big thanks to Grant for giving up an evening to chat to me on the podcast and share some of his wisdom. Also, big thanks to the Football Association for supporting this episode, but also to I Measure You, Hawking Dynamics, Fatigue Science and Omega Wave for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't pressed subscribe on your chosen podcast player, make sure you do. So every Thursday morning UK time, you'll get an expert in the field of sports science and strength and conditioning on your phone for free. So thank you very much for your support and I will speak to you next week.